Hey there, welcome to the Oxford Comment. My name is Alyssa and I'm an assistant marketing manager in the New York office of Oxford University Press. And my name is Carrie and I'm a marketing associate also based in the New York office. On today's episode, we'll be taking a look at the relationship between pop culture and our perceptions of the afterlife. We spoke with Greg Garrett, author of Entertaining Judgment, about heaven, hell, and purgatory, and how our ideas of these topics influence and are influenced by pop culture. We kicked it off with the pearly white gates. Well, there's this really sort of pervasive um, belief that there is something that happens to us afterward. And uh, even if you're not sort of a religious or theological believer in an afterlife, um, you consume a lot of the afterlife. There are, I don't know how many zillions of songs with heaven in the title, uh, or using heaven as a metaphor. You know, love feels like heaven, this feels like heaven, that feels like heaven. Um, But we do the same thing with hell. And uh, so we use it over and over as a metaphor. And even though we don't have uh, a whole lot of creative works that are particularly about hell, explicitly about hell, we do have some. Um, But that sort of metaphor, that controlling narrative, gets used over and over again in our culture and in a lot of Western cultures. Uh, to express some of the things that um, we sort of use the afterlife for. And so it's everything from the kind of stereotypical uh, fluffy cloud heaven, uh, which is, you know, um, something we mostly make fun of these days, uh, to the sort of stereotypical uh, Satan with a pitchfork burning flames hell that we mostly make fun of these days. But even when we're making fun of it, we are using that story to kind of process our experience and figure out what it is that the universe is doing and what we're doing in it. So where, where do the fluffy clouds come from? <laughs> I think they come from a couple of places. There's uh, a lot of Renaissance and Victorian art. Some of the Victorian art especially is really sentimental. Uh, so you think about all the Victorian uh, art with the, with the crazy cute angels. You know, kind of like our, our big-eyed precious moments mm-hmm. angels that are kind of pervasive in culture today. So there's this uh, fluffy clouds heaven is the Heaven is the place where we go to where we will have wings and a crown or a halo. And it's not particularly theologically thought out. Um, Anybody who thinks that human beings and angels are the same thing or that they can sort of mutate into the other uh, are not paying very much attention to scriptural texts. But even a lot of very religious people have this idea. You know, I'm going to die, I'm going to become an angel, I'm going to get my wings. And so it's a great example of a place where pop culture has actually kind of trumped religious texts um, so that uh, very religious people who, if they actually thought about it, might be horrified by stepping away from their biblical or or scriptural authority, um, actually have this idea, you know, I'm going to get up there and I'm going to float around, I'm going to play a harp, and that's what I'm going to do. I think one of the draws of that story, by the way, is like a lot of stories of heaven, um, for people that have had a fairly difficult this life, you know, there's something really appealing. For me, that's not the kind of heaven that I would look forward to. Um, but, you know, if you're a medieval peasant, you know, living this short, brutal life, if you're working in a factory, you know, if you have sweated and strained every day of your life, um, there's something about that idea of leisure time, mm-hmm. you know, just to, to put on your wings and float around and play some beautiful heart music. <laughs> that would be something that you would, you would look forward mm-hmm, to. Mm-hmm. I mean, what, what do you think is the most, so you see this fluffy clouds, but what do you think is the most common construction of heaven nowadays? I think there are maybe actually two or three really common constructions. Um, one of them is paradise. And one of the ways that we typically process our ideas about the afterlife, 
we think about the things that are really powerful and moving and beautiful to us in this life. And so, for example, if you're a fan of the Chicago Cubs, um, you say, you know, the Chicago Cubs will be playing in the World Series in heaven, (laughs) right? Because clearly they're not going to make it in this life. Um, But, you know, I have a lot of friends who say, you know, I think think heaven's going to be like a baseball field, you know, kind of like the movie Field of Dreams, Mm -hmm. where you have that that character, actually a couple of characters who ask the Kevin Costner uh, character, is this heaven? Because this is the most perfect thing I can imagine in this life. In the book, I point out that, sw- that uh, the swimsuit issue of Sports Illustrated <laughs> often uses the uh, headline, uh, Paradise Regained, yeah, yeah. Uh, because for at least a certain kind of human being, uh, beautiful bi- bikini-clad models in a tropical you know, oasis mm-hmm. is heaven. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that idea that you know, heaven in some way represents the gathering of the best of the things that we enjoy about this life. So paradise is one way to think about it. I think a second is this uh, idea of heaven as a place where we are reunited mm. uh, with the people that we have loved and lost. And we see that in a lot of pop culture uh, stories. We see it uh, at the end of Titanic, uh, when old Rose becomes young Rose and meets up with Jack again on the stairway. And all of the people who she met in her story that were lost on the Titanic are there waiting for them. Mm. We see it at the end of Les Miserables. Uh, both the play and the movie, where all the people on the barricades who died uh, during the course of the story are reunited, except for Javert, you know, the bad guy, um, which is also true of the Titanic story. The bad guys are left out of that heaven <laughs> yeah. as well. The end of uh, Terrence Malick's the Tree of Life, uh, if I understand it correctly, which I think I've got at least that part <laughs> yeah. right, that, that scene on the beach is the scene where all of the members of this family, uh, you know, who loved and hated and fought, um, are united again in this place where they can actually live and love each other in peace. And then a third one, which uh, unfortunately is a whole lot more human than it is divine, um, is the idea of heaven as this sort of place of refuge, kind of the ultimate gated community. Um, you know, heaven is the place where people like me are going to be and not people like them. Mm-hmm. And um, it's something that I think we sort of use to make ourselves feel better. It's like, you know, I'm not um, in control of this life, but someday I'm going to be in this place where I'm going to be around people who believe like I do, and we are the only ones who are going to get in. And I I love that story because it's such a human story, and I also love it because there are so many works of art that kind of call it into question. Uh, There's a great story by Flannery O'Connor called Revelation, uh, where the main character is this terrible, bigoted old woman. And she's thinking about how great heaven is going to be. Just, you know, her and other white people Christians like her Mm. Um, and then she has this vision of the stairway to heaven and it's all of these African Americans and white trash as she calls them and and people who are not like her and people that she thinks shouldn't ever get into her gated community (laughs) and that's I think I love the fact that there are sort of counter stories to each of those kind of cultural stories that we tell about the afterlife. Um, because on the one hand, we use them for our human needs. You know, I, I want my heaven to be a place that I can look forward to and that's going to resolve my problems. But if you're a person of faith, if heaven is actually that much like this reality, then it's probably not actually heaven. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that's the, the, the paradox. Yeah. So we're thinking about Harry Potter. And, that, and Carrie brought up that whenever he seems to be close to death is when he's seeing his parents. And yeah. that kind of ties into your idea with about 
you know, rejoining with the people that you know. Yeah, there's this very strong sense in the Harry Potter novels where family, that, that you know, mm-hmm. that controlling narrative of being reunited. And, you know, there are times when Harry is actually thinking, would it be that bad? You know, I'll, I'll be with my family again. And uh, there's the scene in, in Deathly Hallows where, you know, he uses the resurrection stone and calls up yeah. the people who have all been parental figures mm-hmm. to him. You know, his, his parents, his mentors, um, and he's... He's okay with going to his death, knowing that they're going to accompany him, uh, that they're going to be with him. But, you know, in, in the seventh novel, after Harry dies, mm-hmm. and he is in this sort of strange kind of in-between place that's not exactly purgatory, although, it, you know, it might be. Um, it's the, the ghostly King's Cross station, and he mm-hmm. meets Dumbledore there, the last of those kind of mm-hmm. parental figures for him. Yeah, um, and, you know, together they talk through what's, what's next. You know, uh, do you go on? Mm-hmm. You know, you can catch a train and go on to whatever's next, or you can return. And, you know, he decides, thankfully, to return and, and finish up his business. But that is, I think, one of the most interesting things about Harry Potter. And J.K. Rowling has also talked about how one of the things that she was wrestling with as she wrote the book was yeah. the whole question of the afterlife. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, do I believe in this? If I believe in it, what does it mean? And uh, so for her, she said this was, this was a huge part of her wrestling with doubt and faith. Uh, during the 10 years, you know, that she was processing her great story. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So let's move on to hell then. Um, is in your book, you, you say that it's not as prominent in popular culture, at least, as it used to be. Or perhaps not as many people believe in it as it used to be. Yeah, there was, there was a great article, a uh, cover article in The Economist a couple of years ago about hell. And it sort of drew the point, which I had been observing for a while, which is that for many thinking people, even thinking religious people, hell has been diminished in terms of, you know, its importance. Um, If you look at medieval Catholic teaching, you know, hell is is front and center. Mm -hmm. And uh, many of the abuses of the church actually grow up around hell and purgatory, around about getting people out of suffering or saving yourself from future suffering. Mm -hmm. Because suffering was kind of, the the thing that people were I guess the sort of cosmic stick as opposed to the cosmic carrot of heaven <laughs> that that you know was placed in in front of people to sort of get them to behave in a certain way and to believe in a certain way and part of it is you know we've got that stereotypical vision of Satan um, which you know depending on what's going on in the culture can be relevant or frankly ridiculous uh, post nine eleven Satan has actually had a, a sort of rebound in relevance. Um, but if you look at some things just prior to 9-11, uh, he's presented as this sort of figure of comedy. You know, uh, it's ridiculous. How could anybody believe in this, in this figure of cosmic evil? There are, though, a lot of examples in pop culture of hell, which isn't hell. Um, and sometimes it's, it's fairly obvious and symbolic. Uh, Gotham City in the Batman mythos I talk about a lot in the book because it's one of the most prominent representations of hell on Earth. Mm-hmm. Um, whether we're talking about the movies or the comics or the Arkham uh, vi- uh, video games, computer games. But what those writers and storytellers use Gotham for, almost every storyteller uses. Um, one of my other lives, I, I write novels. And one of my first teachers uh, at Iowa said that your job is to dig the deepest hole possible for your characters and then let them try and escape from it. Uh, I mean, which sounds a lot like that sort of stereotypical idea. You're going to put your characters through hell. Mm-hmm. And in a very real sense, we see that happening over and over and over again in the, the great stories that matter. So Titanic, one of the most popular movies of all time. You know, the, the characters descend 
into the underworld. They are tormented and buffeted, and you know, uh, they just barely escape. Um, but it's it's a it's a story that has a whole lot of relevance, even if theologically, we find it difficult to to reconcile with some of our ideas about how the universe works. Why do you think that is? Why is it more difficult than it is to believe in heaven? I think part of it is that there is a reaction against that that sort of tradition that some people think of as uh, somehow unintellectual. I think there's also a reaction against the idea that if there is a, a, a ruler of the universe, a god or a cosmic force or something at the center of the universe, uh, it's hard to believe that if the universe is kind and fair and just that people could be sentenced to an eternity of torment. Mm -hmm. And in fact, one of the raging controversies in the evangelical Christian community right now is if there is a hell, who goes there and how long do they stay? Mm -hmm. And uh, so people who are prominent figures in the evangelical tradition uh, are arm wrestling over this question now. Um, and so there is this... Um, even, even in a tradition that has this theological affinity uh, for the idea of hell as a cosmic place of punishment, mm -hmm. there, there are serious questions about what it actually is and how to reconcile the idea of hell with the idea of a loving and merciful God. And has that led to, I mean, how, how is hell portrayed then in pop culture? Is, is it portrayed less now because we don't believe in it? It's, it's portrayed in two ways, and it almost sort of depends on genre. Um, we said that hell is often depicted for comic effect. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so anytime you turn on South Park, there's you know, a, mm -hmm. probably a better than 50% chance <laughs> that, that Satan or hell are going to be represented. And um, hell is, I mean, it's, you know, it's flames and torment and people being picked apart by you know, demon vultures. Uh, but they're also doing musical numbers, you know? <laughs> Um, so it's, it's not apparently, you know, this uh, terrifying place that we, we remember from Dante. But if we look at places where Satan is still taken seriously, and uh, in horror and supernatural films and stories, that's, that's a place where we still see Satan and the idea of hell as really dramatically powerful. And, and that's where the post-9-11 Satan has kind of jumped back in. Um, the idea that in a world where terrifying things can happen, we actually are a little bit more okay with the idea of there being some kind of cosmic evil because we've, we've sort of seen it. And, and we would prefer not to take that on in our humanity, to think, okay, people just like me are capable of doing things like that. And so there's, there's a reason that that story can be appealing for us because it allows us to sort of push off human evil onto a cosmic force. And um, that's also, I think, particularly powerful in the, the horror genre because you need the most compelling villain. You need the deepest hole <laughs> that you can imagine for your story. So if you've got a story about good versus evil, uh, the idea that your characters who represent good are striving against cosmic evil, mm -hmm. that's, that's a powerful, powerful storyline. So along with heaven and hell, there's purgatory, which is not as prominent. Why do you think that is? Oh, well, partly it's because of the great, you know, religious wars leading to the Reformation and the excesses of the church were largely around purgatory. Uh, so the things like um, pardons and dispensations, uh, the idea that you could pray somebody out of purgatory or buy someone out of purgatory seemed in some ways 
antithetical to the idea of a just and, and merciful God. It seemed more bureaucratically convenient. Um, and the fact that it raised a tremendous amount of money for the church also struck people <laughs> as somehow you know, convenient. Mm-hmm. Um, purgatory has a shorter history than heaven and hell because uh, we've, we've got you know afterlife traditions which are, are pre-Christian, pre-Jewish, going back a long, long way. Um, there are attempts to understand what happens to people and, and where they go and what that reality might be like, you know, as far back as, as we have written literature. Purgatory as a sort of dogma dates to around the 13th century. Uh, the church tries to backdate it, but 13th century is about the time that it becomes sort of official. The committees have ruled on it. Everybody's <laughs> voted. Um, and the fortunate thing is that it's about the time when Dante is writing and he is able to take his artistic genius and put his stamp uh, on it. And he creates this idea of purgatory as a place of hope, which actually stands in stark contrast to most of the ways that the church has taught purgatory. Um, if you look at stories about purgatory, if you look at art about purgatory, um, it's almost always indistinguishable from hell. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only difference is that there's, a, there's an escape hatch of some <laughs> sort. And so there's, you know, there's a, a tiny angel circling up here, um, which is how you know that that's purgatory instead of hell, because otherwise, you know, you're boiling in a soup pot. Um, I think that, that people have found it hard to, um, to reconcile the idea of purgatory with the idea of the afterlife, because it's an intermediary stage. In some ways, it seems inconvenient. You know, we want to take the express train. So if I'm going to heaven, put me on that train, you know. The other thing that I think is really kind of interesting about it is that after the Reformation, we get an entire wave of Christianity moving away from the idea of purgatory as a doctrine or a dogma. But that doesn't mean that it doesn't continue to be a powerful story. And in fact, the story of purgatory is why I wrote this book. Cynthia Reed, my great editor, the religion editor for Oxford, uh, and I had been trying to find a project we could do together for a couple of years. And... She emailed me and she said, what do you think about purgatory? <laughs> That's it. And I said, well, I, I don't know. And she said, why do you think that we believe that you have to go through hell, that you have to go through some kind of suffering to be transformed? And so her question essentially was, even if we don't believe in purgatory as a doctrine or a dogma, why is it that we believe in purgatory as a narrative? Because it is at the heart of really every story that we tell. Mm -hmm. If we have a character who changes, which those are the kinds of characters that we like. We don't don't like static characters who end up exactly where they started. Mm -hmm. If these characters are going to change, well, human nature says that they're only going to change in response to suffering and difficulty. Because we don't change in our everyday lives. You know, we don't tend to. So, like, I'm not going to change my behavior until the doctor says, you're going to have a heart attack if you keep eating barbecue brisket. (laughs) And so we have this belief in the purgatory narrative, even if we don't believe in purgatory. And that, for me, was the fascinating thing. That's that's why it's the sort of ultimate chapter in the book, because I was like, this is the place that I want to get to. The idea that even for those of us who don't believe in this particular brand of the afterlife or way station or however you think about it, It is something that pervades all of the stories we consume and all of the things that we understand about ourselves as human beings. That we become the people that we are supposed to be called to be because we go through this transformational suffering. 
And I guess the other thing, as somebody who's experienced a lot of suffering, it's one of the ways that we use suffering to make some meaning. Mm -hmm. Because if that suffering doesn't lead to anything, then we just live, we live in a universe that's chaotic. There's, yeah, everything happens for a reason. Yeah. Everything. So if we can say there is a reason that this thing happened, it's part of my transformation into the person I'm supposed to be. So, you know, Bruce Wayne loses his parents. That's a terrifyingly bad thing. Mm -hmm. But if Bruce Wayne's loss and suffering leads him to become Batman, mm -hmm. then we can go, okay, I think I can accept that. Mm -hmm. Still sad, still horrible. But the world is a better place, and he is a different and presumably better, although probably much more disturbed person <laughs> because of that purgatory experience. Do you think that need for us to, to have that redemption, does that come from the religious teachings or does that come from the stories that, you know, from over the years? It's hard to say. I mean, that could be a chicken egg kind of question. Yeah. But as I think about the archetypal stories, as Joseph Campbell talks about them in the universal heroes myth, um, he looks actually at a lot of pre-Christian, uh, pre-Jewish pre-Muslim stories of heroes and creation. And that idea of transformation is inherent in just about all of them. Uh, the hero or the heroine, um, but I'll use hero just to be generic. The hero sets out on this task, encounters hardship, uh, faces certain death, uh, dies actually or metaphorically, returns to the community of culture that they were a part of. They return transformed. They return bringing a gift, or what um, he called a boon, B-O-O-N, that not only changes him, but changes the culture that he's a part of. I think that probably we are hardwired to consume that story, because every culture that he encountered, that Campbell encountered, every um, iteration of the story has that same shape to it. And so I think that is just, you know, I think there's something in our storytelling DNA that the purgatory story satisfies for us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, so do you think nowadays, does popular culture focus on one form of the afterlife more than another? I think in terms of like actually tangibly focusing on it, instead of saying, okay, this is a, an iteration of the purgatory myth or this setting represents hell on earth. Um, in the research that I did for the book, I ran across heaven mm -hmm. an awful lot. Mm -hmm. um, and so we find it in... Um, in movies, in stories, in music. Um, I mean, just for funsies, you know, you could take a look at uh, the music on your uh, iPhone or uh, in your playlists and, mm -hmm. you know, find out how many times heaven appears as a title. Mm -hmm. um, and probably it's going to be an awful lot. So one of the things that it sort of indicated to me is that we use heaven as a, a comparison. And so we say, this thing that I'm experiencing now is so great, so sublime, so transcendent, that I imagine it to be like this experience of the afterlife. Um, so, you know, when Fred Astaire sings, uh, heaven, I'm in heaven, mm -hmm. you know, and so heaven is like dancing cheek to cheek, or heaven uh, is a place on earth, if you're Belinda Carlisle. Um, and so I think that probably is the most pervasive use that we find of it in pop culture, the afterlife. Um, comparison that shows up the most is we want to say this is like heaven or you're like heaven uh, and so maybe the sort of side angle to that would be angel you know as kind of a side story because angels are the you know sort of citizens of heaven so to speak um, so when we say that something's angelic or when we have a story in which somebody's compared to an angel uh, or when we have stories in which characters are angels 
Uh, that, that terrible movie with John Travolta, Michael, uh, where he plays the archangel of heaven, uh, come down to earth, and his primary task in this movie is, because it's a romantic comedy, to make sure the right guy and the right girl get together. So, you know, Michael, who's the heroic character who threw Satan out of heaven, uh, now has the job to come to earth and, uh, you know, make sure the right people kiss at the end of the movie. As pedestrian as that sounds, it's also a story that tells us something we want to hear, which is that there's some kind of order to this universe. You know, we were talking earlier about chaos. If if suffering doesn't have a meaning, then we live in a universe that's chaos. Mm -hmm. If we believe that in some way somebody is looking out for us or there's some order or that the right things actually happen, you know, like... I should meet this person and I'm not going to pass them because they're walking down Park Avenue and I'm on Fifth Avenue <laughs> at the moment we're supposed you know, to have our meat cute and spill coffee on each other. <laughs> there is, I think, a powerful sense when we use heaven as a metaphor and angels as a metaphor that we are saying, I don't know exactly how this works, but I think there is some kind of meaning and order and somehow I'm going to end up with some of the things that I'm supposed to get. Uh, we in your book you talk about Batman a lot, and it just seems like um, you know some pop culture references. You know they can cover all aspects of the afterlife. You know how do you think superhero narratives are tied to our visions of the afterlife? Well, Batman is a particular kind of superhero narrative because you've got Superman on the one side and Batman on the other. And uh, in this work and in other works where I've talked about those stories, Superman is much more of a sort of messianic figure. Um, in the, you know, sort of original formulation of him, you know, two Jewish teenagers created Superman. Uh, they gave him the name Kal-El, uh, which is Hebrew for all that is God, um, which it sounds an awful like Emmanuel, God with us, which is one of the titles for the Jewish Messiah. And so all the associations we have with that sort of line of superhero are heaven-related. Um, so Metropolis is the city of the future, you know, it's like New York City, but clean, you know, and beautiful and, you know, with this, you know, kind of amazing art deco uh, architecture everywhere. So Metropolis is heaven, and that's where Jesus lives, okay? Um, and Gotham City is dark, and it smells, and it's violent, and it's hell on earth. And Batman is a sort of demon who lives there. Um, now, it turns out that he's a good demon, even though he sort of uses the methods of his setting. You know, um, there are these archetypal scenes from any of the Batman films where basically he is just scaring the hell out of people, <laughs> right? Uh, so, you know, he sneaks up on them. He's violent, uber violent. Um, and so he's using the devil's methods to do God's work, so to speak. Um, and so Batman is this really interesting character and most people would say that Superman he would rather be friends with Superman you know <laughs> have a beer with Superman have Superman save you or get your cat out of a tree but Batman is a much more interesting character <laughs> he's dark he's driven um, he's always on the edge um, very similar to the way that uh, the new Daredevil series on Netflix is portraying that sort of street level you know <laughs> demon character what is interesting about Batman is that he is somebody who faces the same kind of conflicts that we face. And what's heroic about him is that he's able to do all the things that he does and not cross the line 
that would make him truly demonic. Mm-hmm. So he is, he is, and uh, the character Hellboy, who's one of my favorite characters in comics and film, mm-hmm. uh, and Daredevil, uh, are three really great examples of comic characters who are good demons, who are people who are a part of this setting and nonetheless above it. Do you think that um, there's a certain medium in popular culture that has a greater influence on how we think about the afterlife than another? We are actually bombarded by messages about the afterlife in every kind of media. Uh, It would be really hard for me to pick one, because not only do we have all the pop culture things that we've talked about, we've got movies, novels, comics, music, um, but there are all the sorts of culture that people have consumed over the last couple thousand years. Stained glass windows. Mm and medieval tapestries and medieval painting and altarpieces. But if you, if you get on Amazon and you, you do a search for angels or for uh, any of these sort of pop uh, culture um, manifestations of the afterlife, I mean, it's amazing. You know, um, just one of the sort of sample things that I did was I looked at 10,000 different products related to guardian angels on Amazon. <laughs> You know, and it's everything from guardian angel crystals to keychains mm-hmm. to, I mean, you know, every kind of thing that you could consume or carry or hang up. And so there's this very real sense in which we consume all of these different kinds of culture to reinforce these stories that help us make sense of the universe. I mean, I have particular favorites. You know, I would rather watch a Christopher Nolan Batman film than go to the precious moments <laughs> chapel in Branson, Missouri or wherever it is. Um, but that's probably not true of my grandmother. So, you know, I think we each sort of pick and choose. That is, I think, one of the reasons why these stories continue to be so powerful for us, because they get reinforced for us in whatever our pop culture mode of choice might be. Yeah. Um, do you think that people are focused on these images and characters of the afterlife as a means for help to kind of get through this life or as a means for preparation for what's beyond? What do you think their real focus is? You know, it could be a little of both. Um, I think one of the things that we do when we think about the afterlife, and I've done a lot of call-ins because uh, we've set up a lot of radio for this book, and what's interesting to me is that I always get two different sort of extremes. People who say, there is no afterlife. I can't believe that you wrote a book about the afterlife, which is not actually what the book is about. But. <laughs> and then we get people who say, I can't believe you say there's no afterlife, <laughs> which also is not what the book is about. But you know, people are hearing what they need to hear to feed mm-hmm. into the story that they're telling themselves. And so if the story you're telling yourself is there is no afterlife, that's still a story you're telling yourself that you're using to shape the way you live now. You know, you're going to live differently believing you only go around once in this life than if you believe that everything you do is preparation for something that comes next. Mm -hmm. And whether or not, you know, we theologically believe in an afterlife. I have this idea now that if there is an afterlife, that would be awesome. Mm -hmm. This life is pretty great. But if there is an afterlife, that would also be awesome. Mm -hmm. And I have to imagine that it would be greater, better, than the greatest things that I know about. If you did not end well with people that you loved, and there's not a chance to fix that in this life, then you might imagine that the afterlife might be a place where you could have that reconciliation. If you've lived a really difficult life, um, you know, I've talked about my grandma several times in this interview. Um, She's been poor almost her entire life, you know, struggled month to month, paycheck to paycheck, There is something profound to her about that idea of a heaven where you walk on streets of gold 
and wear a crown filled with the jewels you've earned in this life. Mm -hmm. Because she will never know anything like that in this life. And so if there is something beautiful and rich and luxurious in the next life, that is something that you can anticipate in those stories as well. So I, I think that there are lots of ways that we can make use of these stories in some way as a way to prepare ourselves for what might happen. Now, one of the call-ins that I've often gotten uh, as uh, we've done uh, shows and panels and things about this book is, what do you think the afterlife is going to be like? Mm -hmm. And I just say, I don't know. <laughs> that's, you know. That's not the subject of the book, which is about how is the afterlife depicted in, in culture mm -hmm. and in literature. Um, and that's one of the early points I make in the book, that no one knows. It's why Hamlet talks about death as the undiscovered country mm -hmm. from whose born no one returns. And it's also, I think, one of the reasons it's such a universal human interest. Whether or not you believe in an afterlife or don't, what is death? What happens to us after we die? I mean, it's, it's one of the most compelling and universal of the questions that we wrestle with. And that's it for this episode. Greg's book is called Entertaining Judgment and is available now at your favorite retailer. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Oxford Common. Our episodes can be found on the OUP blog, SoundCloud, and iTunes. Until next time.